the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am, in fact, the host, Kevin Randall. I'll be joined here momentarily by Don Schmidt. And Don, by the way, if you have comment, fling it in here, because I'm going to do a bit of a rant. And it has to do with the people who are uh, reviewing stuff on on Amazon and, and whatnot. And it just kind of annoys me. And I get that no matter how perfect a book is, there are going to people who be people who don't like it. And one of the examples I think of is I just watched The Great Escape this last week. So I looked up the uh, reviews on that movie and there were people who absolutely hated it or disliked it and gave it bad ratings. And part of it I understood because The Great Escape, when it took place from Stalag Luf 3, was all British, all English, all Commonwealth people. The Americans had been moved to a separate camp, so they weren't participants. And a a lot of people condemned the movie because they had a couple of Americans in in the movie in prominent roles, James Garner and and Stephen Queen, to to name two of them. And so I I understand that. But what I don't like is people who reject a book, not because they've read it and dislike it. They don't like the subject matter. They don't like the title or they don't like the author. And I get that, you know, I've offended people out there in the world of ufology, and I was going to say rightly so. It's really not rightly so. It's because I have an opinion that is uh, less oriented toward the extraterrestrial than most of them have, and I don't embrace everything. I look at the evidence. I look at the facts. I want to know what's going on. One guy uh, gave a bad review to, or a bad rating to, um, uh, Roswell in the 21st century, and his whole his whole um, argument was there's no such thing as aliens. And I thought, well, if you'd read the book, you wouldn't have made that comment. So it was clear to me he hadn't read the book. If you read the book and you dislike it and you have reasons to dislike it, I'm on board. I got it. I understand it. But if you haven't read the book, I just wish you wouldn't bother to review it. And you know, some of the reviews, the negative toward reviews, have some good comments in them that I, that I take to heart and try to to change. But another comment was the guy didn't like the book because it arrived in bad shape. That's not my fault. I didn't ship the book. I didn't print the book. It's something to do with the publisher and the distribution. It has nothing to do with me or anything else. So I just thought I'd mention that to those who are listening, because I think we've reached the point in the world today where everybody has a computer, everybody has an opinion, and not all the opinions are worthwhile. I think that people uh, publish stuff in their online um, that they would never say in public. They, they hide behind the, 
anonymity of the keyboard to, to make uh, very obnoxious statements about things. And I just wish that people would be a little bit more civil in their tone. Appoint me the civil officer of the world here. I'm, I'm advocating for civility amongst all of us here to go on. Anyway, that was kind of my rant. I just um, hope people will at least give a book uh, a reading before they uh, write a review, a criticism of the book. And they, if they have a criticism, that the criticism actually makes some sense, that sort of thing. As I said, I'm going to be done, joined by Don Schmidt. He's sitting there. We are now socially distanced, not because we want to be, but because we just happen to live in different states. And this is the way we do it. Otherwise, we'd probably be sitting in the same room without masks, violating every mandate we can find to violate, at least I would be, just to be arbitrary about the whole situation. What we're going to do here is a wrap-up of what's gone on ufologically in the last uh, 12 months. There's been a lot of stuff going on, and I know that Don has a lot of opinions about it, and so do I. Don, welcome to A Different Perspective once again. Well, great to be back with you, Kevin, and uh, just to chime in and uh, actually reinforce your own um, as far as editorial remarks as far as on reviews of our works, our books, I don't care if it's our writing, our art, our mute, what have you, that uh, obviously it's created a whole new climate uh, throughout society that, uh, as you pointed out, they don't even have to read our books. They don't have to read page one. It's amazing how often you read a review and it's like, are they even talking about the same book? Uh, a current book we have out on Roswell is uh, basically just celebrities who have been touched by Roswell, who have been there, were born there, went to school there, went to the mili military institute. And, and somebody chimed in and commented about uh, it was the same old uh, research. And it's like, you obviously didn't even read the title of the book. And yet you're, you're, you're writing review. So it basically, go back to school, leave the writing to the authors and uh, try it yourself someday. And um, we'll make it a point not to read your, <laughs> your tones, so. Well, I think the, the, the important thing is if you've got a, if you read a book and you don't like it for whatever reason, I mean, Stephen King and J.K. Rawlings gets bad reviews, and there's just something that turns a person off about a book. And if it's a legitimate complaint, I'm all for it. Let's let's hear it. But if it's just I just don't like the subject matter, I don't like you, I don't like the cover of the book, um, that's certainly not a, a grounds for criticism. Speaking of cover cover of, of a book, remember our first first together UFO crash at Roswell, and it had the the Dan Fry spinning top. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> jacket <laughs> we, we were appalled it was like how do we change this how do we get this hoax you know contact me photograph off of our book and, and as you recall too that it was avon at that time inserted i mean how many errors mistakes in the book i mean they didn't even spell heineck right and it, you know if anybody knew how to spell heineck we certainly did dr jail and heineck and uh, but Bottom line, it's the author's fault. So I was the author. Well, I think I think it's time to move on and let's pick on another author. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm thinking I'm thinking specifically of Jacques Vallée and Trinity. Mm -hmm. um, I've got some stuff up on my blog about Trinity. I interviewed Vallée and uh, 
Paula Harris, right? Paula Harris on on the on the book. She said very little in the interview. It was mostly ballet, which was fine with me. I tried to which drag is, her into which it. Is, which is interesting because the general consensus is that she wrote the book. Well, I was I, I was surprised that ballet lent his name to it until I read something uh, in the last week, and there was a um, ballet's got a scientific peer-reviewed paper coming out, I think, next month. You, you can find it online, and I'll have a link to it on my blog, uh, about um, what he called 10 uh, unexplained UFO sightings that had metallic debris associated with them. I don't know if you've seen right. the paper or not. I know of it, its uh, availability, right. Yeah, and the problem is, when I look at the, that stuff, there's at least two of the cases that he talks about are, that are hoaxes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what sort of analysis of the metal is going to do you any good if the case is a hoax. And I'm thinking specifically of Maury Island. He mentions Texas, the Texas, uh, Aurora, Texas crash. Aurora, Texas. That's the one that really floored me. I mean, it's like, go ahead. Well, I was going to say in the paper, he said that, uh, uh, you know, it, it looks like it might be a hoax, but he leaves the, the door open that there might be something to it. Uh, Maury Island is clearly a hoax, and he has some information about that in the paper. Some of the other stuff comes from Frank Edwards, and Frank Edwards was horribly inaccurate in his in his books. I mean, if you look at what he wrote about Roswell and UFO uh, flying saucer serious business, right. he got the name of the place right, Roswell. Right. That was and about that's, it. That's about it. Yeah. He talked about Brazel. He didn't know Brazel's name. Called him the rancher. Seeing the object fly low over the ranch house and explode, and he called the sheriff. And I'm thinking, a uh, the the debris field was what ten miles from the from the house. Ten miles from the ranch house, correct. And there was hilly country in between the ranch house and where it came down, so he couldn't have seen a crash. Yeah. Uh, he yeah, had no phone. No, no phone, and it was always interesting. Remember, we used to ask like the locals in that Corona region, because they would talk about how they would on Sunday, their day of rest, they would typically go into Corona for the lone payphone, the pay the, the phone booth in the entire area, and they would take turns on the phone, and we just asked, well, given no one has a phone, who are you calling? And they they would laugh and they go, well, we just would dial any number, and it was just such a thrill to talk to somebody over a phone. So, and and then they didn't get phone service in the area until 1986. So and now we there. carry phones around in our pocket. Right, right. They'll try to get a decent signal out there, but uh... <laughs> but but with valet, um, he endorses the San Antonio crash, and I you know. For those of you who might not know, these two gentlemen claimed as youngsters they saw a UFO crash near San Antonio, New Mexico, which is not all that far from Socorro and between Socorro and Roswell, and uh, talked about the recovery operation. And Valet lent his name to this book that is just uh, has absolutely no good data in it. I think you talked to one of the one of the men involved in this, uh, Ramey Baca. Rami Baca, I had just uh, lectured in uh, Ventura, uh, California, 1995, just north of LA. And uh, I was approached and they presented, they introduced him, you know, thinking that he was a possible first-hand witness. And um, the information he provided 
in telling me, not first of all, that it was connected to Roswell. He was very specific about that, saying that it was 1947, and he talked about the planes. Well, I assumed the planes of St. Augustine. And as we both know, the planes is, is often uh, representative of a particular ranch, any one ranch where they might refer to an area as the plains. It's, 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 it's typically a flatter stretch of, of pasture, that type of thing. Whereas, uh, you know, for you and I, the plains are synonymous with the plains of San Augustine, uh, south of, uh, south, uh, west of Socorro. And the original attempt by Bill Moore and vis-a-vis uh, Stan Friedman in trying to tie the Barney Barnett story, the, uh, the civil engineer, his account that he described to his boss, uh, I believe it was Fleck Danley, around 1950, and they tried to tie the Barnett story to Roswell because it smacked of bodies, it smacked of a, a craft. So beyond just well, the record, that was that was the point. I think it was the only information they had it, it, the early on that talked about bodies. Correct. Because there was nothing out of Roswell that talked about it, no. so they needed that connection to make the alien connection. Absolutely. And so in being introduced to him, um, I really didn't uh, ponder it any further because I thought, oh, just another uh, uh, plain St. Augustine story, that type of thing. And, and yet he, he bought a copy of uh, one of the Roswell books. So he would become versed and he was schooled. He had attended the lecture, obviously. So as we both then witnessed with the Valet Harris book, that much of it is, is taken right from the Roswell account. Uh, how much of it that is, is strictly Roswell in origin, and yet there it is, and both of LA, and, and, and really you know, uh, problematic for the fact that Valet is the one accepting this now when he really never had anything good to say about Roswell heretofore. He just kind of always, you know, it's, it's two nuts and bolts. And uh, we, we know Valet's history, and he's now come full circle because he, he started out as Heineck is accepting that we were dealing with an actual physical phenomenon that interacted with the environment, he tracked it on radar, uh, aside from visual observation and physiological effects on witnesses. And then the, the whole idea as far as that is, as Heineck too was a bit of a mystic that Valet got more and more into the uh, esoteric. The, uh, the, the paranormal. He was trying to tie this all together, even into ancient folklore. And I think that's where many within ufology then started to write him off, that he was getting into the fringe and uh, was no longer one of us, so to speak. Well, let me interrupt you there, because I'm going to have to break away uh, to take our first break. We're talking with Don Schmidt, obviously, about uh, what's gone on in the last uh, 12 months with U UFOs, and we'll get into a lot of other aspects of it as well. You know, one of the big things, of course, is the valet book on uh, Trinity. So we'll talk about that. Uh, my latest book, apparently, is uh, Level Land, which will be available for publication on January 6th. Uh, you can take a look at the front cover on uh, Amazon, which I think is a stunning cover. Uh, so I'm delighted with that. Uh, Don, your latest book is Conversations with the <laughs> you, uh, let me get well, no, we'll break away from here. We'll be back right after this with Don Schmidt with the name of his book. So, uh, please stick around.
Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. And I am here with Don Schmidt. We're talking about uh, the year in review, I guess, uh, which is the things you do at the end of the year. When we went away, I'd asked about his latest book, and it was a, I couldn't come up with the title of it, and I asked Don what it was, and apparently oh, he doesn't. Uh, <laughs> well, you were it's, talking about celebrities in, in Roswell. Yes, and I, touched, by, touched by Roswell, Crash Encounters of the Rich and Famous. So obviously everyone from John Denver to Edgar Mitchell to Demi Moore to uh, William Shatner and Roy Thinnes and everybody and anyone who has had any connection, whether entertainment or political or uh, professional sports. So it's a fun book. It's uh, it, a lot of uh, personal anecdotes involving these celebrities and their connection to Roswell. So we had a lot of fun putting it together. A lot of uh, hundreds of pictures uh, throughout. And so uh, that's the uh, current outcropping of the uh, Roswell uh, situation. But I wanted to point out too, Kevin, quickly, uh, Levelin, one of the best cases of all time. And I can't, and the point is you came up with new witnesses. You came up as far as with new testimonies. And I applaud you for that. And it just solidifies the case even further. Well, we even, I even found a, and I don't want to give away things, I even found out that the, there were Air Force officers involved in seeing the object uh, close up and probably stalled their car engine, but all that information disappeared. It's not in the Project Blue Book files, and you got to say, well, the Air Force obviously knew about it. What I was going to say is, is the one comment you made about lots of pictures in the book is what criticism of one of my books that didn't have enough pictures. I know, I know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what are you, in the fourth grade? And if, and if anything, editors, publishers are reducing the number of pictures because they're so strict on the resolutions, on the number of, of pixels, that uh, it has to almost be a firsthand original picture before they even accept it. I mean, they have you jump through more and more hoops. Uh, you would think as far as with the, the formatting that almost like a digital camera that you can do it practically as you write it and drop the picture in and scan it and have a, you know, the layout. And as in the past where you submitted hard copy and you just relied on them to essentially assemble it and put it together correctly. Um, it, uh, it's not as simple as it looks folks. It, uh, again, it's, it's becoming uh, even stricter as we speak. Well, when we went away, we went away talking about um, Trinity and Jacques Vallée, um, and your encounter with Ramey Baca, who is, I guess, the only living witness who was there in 1945. Everybody else had passed away before anybody really investigated this, uh, including Paula Harris, who I think jumped on the case in the very early um, beginnings of this century. Uh, and did I have a copy of an interview she conducted with uh, him uh, in 2010, which... Uh, I looked at and read through the whole thing at the time and decided, you know, this just doesn't make any sense to me at all. What, if I might quickly interject, and it's something that neither you or I have discussed, and I really haven't talked with anybody else about. 
but it was at the time of the uh, alien autopsy. And we don't call it Roswell. You and I, you know, made sure that they didn't refer to it as the Roswell alien autopsy from the very beginning, and mainly because they couldn't tie it directly to the case. And there were no witnesses that said that's exactly what I saw back in 1947, that type of thing. So when Michael Hesman and Philip Mantle originally came to New Mexico and they were seeking out uh, additional testimony and outside information regarding other prospective crashes. And I remember that they originally latched onto a possible crash in the San Antonio, New Mexico area. And they tried to tie it into the alien autopsy, this, this uh, phantom photographer that uh, was editing, you know, old Elvis uh, footage and happened to stumble upon, you know, what he still had in one of his film canisters down in his basement, that type of storyline. And so some of this had its origins back at that time already where this, this story was languishing and where to plug it in. And I, and I honestly believe that Rami Baca at first, when he was, when he was, introduced to me, he was trying to plug it into the Roswell incident. That's why he said it happened in 1947. He was very specific as far as in my meeting him at that time. And then to see that, well, depending on who you talk to, all of a sudden now it's 1945, and it ties in with the, uh, the first uh, atomic bomb detonation at, at Trinity, just to the south of there. And so the fact that Valet has gone to great lengths to tie it in with the atomic bomb detonation. And we talk about how investigators, researchers make the, you know, the foolhardy mistake of trying to think alien, so to speak. And I, and I think that's almost like what, what Sagan, the late Carl Sagan would even suggest that, well, certainly if aliens were, were arriving here on planet earth, they would come see me first. You know, that I'm the number one scientist in my mind. And, and so I, I, I sense a little bit of that as far as with, with Jacques Vallée as well, that uh, he's, he's trying to reason as to why that location, why at that time, and that is enough for him to say, well, let's go down and investigate this. And I don't, uh, object. I don't object to the investigation. I object to... No, no. The, the, the testimony said, well, we have a new witness. The new witness wasn't even born in 1945. She appears on the scene 10 or 12 years later. Correct. Uh, having, having been to the site then. I mean, we've been to the Roswell site or sites. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know how many times. I mean, that doesn't make us firsthand witnesses to the event. We can, Never. Right. We can look at, at the uh, scene. But I think... When I looked at the, the book, I could not understand Valet getting involved in this because the story seemed to be so far out. But then we see this paper that he's just written, uh, which will be published is published online now. And it's the same kind of thing. It's the same kind of stuff. There's a case from Council Bluffs, Iowa, which I'd never heard of from December 17th, 1977. And I've, I've got a blog posting about it now to give the basics of it. Uh, an object, flaming object was seen falling into uh, the Lake Park in Council mm -hmm. Bluffs area. Um, 
all kinds of um, manifestations, very hot, very molten type object. Uh, metal was recovered from it. They don't know what it was, uh, but the metal turned out to be carbonized steel. I mean, it was trustly manufactured material. Uh, we don't know how it got there. We don't know if it's some kind of hoax. We don't know if it, what it might have fallen off of, exactly what's going on there. But I don't understand how we move this to the, to the extraterrestrial, just because we can't explain how it got there. And, and this thing in San Antonio is sort of the same thing. He got this debris, and there's a link to the debris so those, the, the people can see what it looks like on my blog. There's a link to pictures of the debris. But it turns out to be parts of a windmill, I guess. It's exactly the, the, the UFO hit. Well, what good does that do us? So, as I had said at the beginning of, of the program, that it's, 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 it's Jacques, Jacques has, has come full circle in that where Heineck wrestled with the vast distances between star systems. He just couldn't accept that a physical object could travel from point A to point B, that type of thing. But yet, the longer he was involved, he had to accept that we were dealing with someone else's hardware, physical, as far as uh, you go across the street, kick the tires, so to speak. And we witnessed that evolution. We, we saw that the only thing that's going to be substantial in establishing the reality of the phenomena is something that you can display to the public, hold it in your hand, and maybe like a piece of memory material, and uh, this isn't made here. See it for yourselves, that type of thing. And as Heineck, you, you know, became older, and so often as I witnessed him, he would make that, that, that comment over and over again. I'm an old man in a hurry. I'm an old man in a hurry. And I did an article on the whole Trinity book that was published in England. It's, it was published in, in Italy. It's now going to be published in, in France. And uh, I believe uh, Enigma Magazine just ran it here in the States. And I compare Jacques' behavior almost to, the, to that of a more desperate, frantic Heineck. In that, as, and Jacques, who was now almost 10 years older than Heineck was at that time, that he's becoming more desperate for answers. And as a result, he realizes, too, that it's going to take a piece of physical evidence. But he's searching in the wrong category. He's searching at, at, in the wrong cases. And you would think that in his position, that he would have a little more clout, even with certain governments, that he could say, hey, I'm 80 years old. I'd like to know before I go. I'd like to see something before it's too late, instead of stumbling around out in the desert and to all that gypsum bush thinking that something's going to pop up that was left behind after you know 77 years well you you uh, offer an opportunity for a brilliant transition here because you were talking about the vast distances and the physicality of getting from there here and avi Lowe, the harvard astronomer who's made quite a name for himself in the last few months talking about the solar system being invaded by some kind of an alien artifact um, in his project Galileo. Right. I, you know, I've talked to him, I think three times about this. I keep getting invited to the press conferences, which I think is kind of neat. They're always held over the internet. So right. I participate by invitation only. 
So I think that's kind of interesting as well. But uh, Avi Loeb uh, is of the opinion that these artifacts that he's searching for and the artifact that he believes, well, the artifact that did pass through the solar system, be it artificial or natural, was um, tens of thousands of years old and had traveled for tens of thousands of years to get here. Uh, and that's what he's now searching for. So that kind of negates the vast distances argument. But I think his theory is these artifacts are sort of an announcement of here, we're, we're here, as opposed to sending out messages in bottles. We don't know who's going to get it. We don't know how long it's going right. to take. But right. eventually it's going to arrive somewhere and somebody's going to see it and they're going to realize that we're here or we were here at one point. Uh, I don't know how long a industrial civilization such as ours is going to survive and how it may change in the future uh, to change their attitudes and the way they operate. So we've got all those questions to deal with. Uh, have you had any interaction with with Avi Loeb, and I'm going to have to break away, so keep it short. <laughs> well, no, uh, through colleagues, certainly. And I appreciate the fact that he is reaching out to the UFO community, that uh, he realizes that there is a rich history of the phenomena that he needs to uh, you know, appraise himself of. So he then will make his, his final efforts as far as uh, steered in the right direction. So um, I compliment him, I applaud him, and the fact that, uh, you know, as a, a late colleague, as far as of his, Dr. John Mack of Harvard Medical School, that uh, Dr. Mack, who broke, you know, the ground as far as in risking his tenure at the college, that here, Avi Loeb, I think he's taking a safe, a safe approach, as you described, that it's something still out there, it hasn't arrived here. But nonetheless, it's acknowledging that something artificial, something not manufactured off the planet is there, and we need to investigate this. Well, I think this, his attitude was this was something that, uh, it was an alien artifact that passed through our solar system. It had right. not originated in our solar system, but it could be a natural object. But his attitude was it was probably an artificial object, and that was what he wanted to do and figured there would be more of them out there. We're going to have we're going to have to take a break here. I'm with Don Schmidt. We're talking about UFOs. We're talking about what's been going on in the last uh, uh, year. And I mentioned frequently my book, Level Land, which will be coming out on January 6th, much to my surprise. <laughs> I thought it was going to be delayed a little bit longer than that. Um, I've done Roswell in the 21st century. I have a book on the Socorro called Encounter in the Desert, which deals with uh, Lonnie Zamora and his sightings. So if you get a chance, Head on over to Amazon and take a look at that. And we will be back right after this. So please stick around. We know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors. Luckily, Kroger Free Pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply, subject to availability. It's the big $10 sale, so mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
And we are back with Don Schmidt. We've been talking about what's happened in the last year in the world of ufology. We were talking about Avi Loeb and his Galileo project, which is being set up to search for um, visiting alien artifacts. And by alien, I can define that as either natural or manufactured artifacts. Uh, natural alien artifact would be something that was uh, came from outside the solar system, let's put it that way, from, from another star system, wherever it might be, it may, it may have been traveling for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. Um, so we were talking about that, and I think Don and I agree that it was marvelous to see a prestigious scientist such as Avi Loeb at a prestigious university come out and start talking about alien artifacts and, and and artificial artifacts. It was his opinion based on his observations of the object that passed through the solar system, I guess earlier in the year, that it was uh, artificial. It wasn't traveling very fast. I think it traveled fast enough to reach the speed necessary to the escape velocity to leave the solar system. But that certainly creates a situation where the object is gonna be traveling for tens of thousands of years. We launched, uh, was it the, the Viking space probe, the Voyager probes in the 1970s. And the one, one of them has left our solar system after traveling all these decades. It's just outside the solar system. That's all the further it's gotten. And the suggestion was it would reach another star system in some 80,000 years. So 80,000 years, it may pass through a solar system and Avi Loeb's counterpart in that system would detect it and say, hey, here's an artificial probe coming through our solar system. Well, um, I think you yes. and I should, should spearhead as far as an effort to uh, reinstate Pluto as the ninth planet. Because as we learned with, uh, with Voyager as it passed Pluto, it's a beautiful sphere. Um, I mean glowing blue it's just a gorgeous um example of what what might have envisioned you know like venus actually looking you had mars the red planet and you know saturn with its rings the size of jupiter that type of thing where as pluto looks at least as though there was or there could have at one time been an atmosphere okay so and you mentioned even viking viking was in the 70s too because you had viking uh, was it one or two that landed on Mars on the yes. uh, 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 seven, uh, 1976, the actual 4th of July, you know, celebration weekend, that type of thing. But the, but, but the object that, you know, that, that, that Loeb, and you're talking that the chairman of the astronomy department at Harvard, the very chairman, and that, that this object was the size of a football field. And though it looked, it looked uh, as far as natural, but it didn't, behave natural. In fact, that he, as, as soon as he concluded that it was, you know, internally controlled, that there was something is steering it, so to speak. And that he would use it to launch, you know, as far as the, uh, the Project Galileo, as far as, as you described, to look for other space artifacts, space relics, something that uh, is not manufactured here on planet Earth. And uh, the fact that he's even gotten the likes of Seth Salshak, as far as uh, from SETI, to even be on his board. I think um, he's, he's in that case, SETI's covering themselves in the event, you know, there should be such additional discoveries made. 
well, we would have seen it eventually anyway, but we're focused much deeper, you know, into uh, deep space, so to speak. And we're listening for, you know, that radio signal that uh, someday, you know, the wow, that, that wow signal that they're going to pick up. So well, one, thing that, one thing that I noticed um, in my discussions with him, and I got him on the program, I think I got it under his skin a little bit because I was talking about the vast history of ufology that, that you had mentioned earlier. And that they sort of um, rejected out of hand that. And I can understand some of that simply because a lot of the data wasn't collected in a very methodical way, a very scientific way. Um, a lot of it is anecdotal. And a lot of the conclusions being drawn are based on faulty assumptions. Uh, we can take a look at any number of, of UFO sightings where it seems to be very mysterious, but if you get all the information, I was going to say dig down to the uh, bottom of it, and I just didn't want to use the term dig down because it's become such a cliche, but you get deeply into the um, information and you find out where the uh, the data has been slightly massaged, not necessarily purposely, but somebody just cherry picks the, the information they want. So it becomes mysterious and you learn a little bit more about it and you find an explanation. And I think that's one of the reasons they were kind of uh, um, hesitant to uh, accept UFO information. And I suggested a couple of ways to doing it. And I was talking to him about this rich history that may provide us some clues. And I was thinking specifically of the electromagnetic effects. We've got a large body of cases where the UFO comes close to the ground, interacts with the environment, stalls car engines, maybe it puts out lights in cities, animals react to it. So you've got an interaction with the environment in some fashion, and it may provide some clues, at least to some of the UFOs. Because when we talk about ufology, of course, the electromagnetic effects is a very small subset of the entire ufological spectrum. But I thought there might be something of interest there. And I was thinking, again, specifically of Level Land because of the fact at that in that case, you have witnesses at at least 13 separate locations independently reporting basically the same thing in a matter of 90 minutes or two hours on November 2nd, November 3rd, uh, reporting it to the sheriff's office and that sort of thing and, and doing it in such a way that the sheriff eventually goes out to take a look at it. And there are officers from... Um, Reese Air Force Base, which is Lubbock. Lubbock is 15 minutes. I think the base is like 20 minutes from Level Land, uh, given the situation. I've been down there and driven through the area. Level Land turned out to be a lot bigger than I thought it was last time I drove through it. But, but the point simply is um, you've got Air Force officers involved in it as well. And when we get down to looking at the case file, well, the Air Force only counts three pieces. Three people saw the object. Well, that's not true. In their own file, they, they list five people who saw the object and, and additional people who got uh, had the electromagnetic effects. So they were so busy arguing over the number of witnesses that they didn't bother with that. And I think the Air Force suppressed a lot of the information simply because they couldn't explain it and it was moving in a direction they didn't want to go. But my point simply was this, that I think there's something there in these cases that may be a benefit to Avi Loeb's investigation of these objects coming into the solar system, when you take a look at the cases of the electromagnetic infection, you might be able to de determine something from those cases that would be beneficial in your search for additional artificial ob objects. And you and I have demonstrated beyond many others that provided there 
remain witnesses that you can still go back and reinvestigate any one of these cases. And when you, as you learned with Levin, that when there are military witnesses involved and it's like, well, where is their testimony? How come they are not in the Blue Book report? That was the same thing that Heineck uh, would often describe regarding Dexter Ann Arbor, the Michigan sightings in 66. The one that he got in trouble just for attributing just that one witness description as swamp gas. He never intended that it would apply to all of the sightings, uh, like from Riversdale, you know, college and all that. But nonetheless, he lived with that for the rest of his life. But Heineck had talked to an Air Force officer. He interviewed him. He spent the better part of a half an hour, and he was a witness to what those students had seen at the time. And yet it was never part of the Blue Book file. So another example of where they were making sure, first of all, that they censored their own and then making sure that the last thing they wanted was anyone within their own ranks speaking to the press because it would have opened this up beyond their control. And, and Blue Book hardly you know, had enough personnel to even investigate to begin with, let alone real people, their witnesses back in and, and shut things down. I think, too, for the fact that we, we, we see that so many of the cases are just swept away as possible and probable, that type of thing. But as both Heineck and even Ed Ruppelt, first director of Blue Book, would remind us that the more detail, the more witnesses, the more information they had on the case, the more solid. They, these were the best cases they had. So it wasn't a case of insufficient information and that they couldn't explain. It was, no, they couldn't explain the best cases they had with the most information. And that's why they would dance around. They would make just cursory as far as inquiries into, because they were afraid that it would become solid, that it would become something that they couldn't uh, keep a lid on, so to speak. And Levlin's one of those examples. Well, the Levlin case, if you take a look at the Blue Book file, what you see is a some discussion amongst the various Air Force officers waiting for NICAP to mm -hmm. make some kind of conclusion or some kind of report because it's easier to respond to the report than to present your, your case without that nice. kind of a framework to work from. And I think that's kind of illustrative. You know, we'll, we'll just wait and see what they say and what they have. And once we know that, then we'll be able to respond to um, that information. But uh, with the Leveland case, I mean, if you go through the file, the, the Blue Book file, carefully, you'll see that uh, it contradicts itself periodically. The other thing, when we moved to the Condon Committee, the University of Colorado study, and I always frame things this way simply because for the people who may not be familiar with all the terminology, as you and I are, uh, but when the Condon Committee did the University of Colorado study, they didn't go to Leveland. They came up with an excuse so you go to the index Leveland comes up once talking about electromagnetic effects, but right. there was nothing they could do. And so they didn't bother. Didn't bother. Their investigation started only 10 years after the Leveland cases. There's all kinds of things they could have done. Don Berliner went to Leveland, I think in the middle of the 1970s and uh, actually talked to the sheriff. Mm -hmm. and, uh, did an article in official UFO magazine about that. And, and the sheriff told him things then that, that did not come out in 1957, 
later on, uh, we learned that the sheriff had been told not to talk about it, and not to say anything. So uh, much later as, in his life, he did share that information with some people. As precisely as we both have described that, and I'm, I'm encouraging colleagues uh, in Illinois right now, as far as the, the 2007 O'Hare incident, that many of the United Airlines personnel are now retired pilots, both on the ground and possibly in the air, uh, traffic controllers, uh, just uh, runway, just uh, tarmac as far as personnel, to now track these people down, talk to these people, get them on the record when they may finally be able to talk, that the, the gag order you know, is no, no longer a pl- The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Lies. And so we just, you just can't say, well, it was a good case and then leave it alone. You need to either reinvestigate. You need to either track down additional witnesses. You need to either solidify what you have to make your case, or you have not performed due diligence. And it's why, whether it was Socorro, whether it was Levelin, whether it was the, 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 the uh, DC overflights of 52, the fact that you don't realize until you actually go back and you, and you go, oh my God, I have, an, I have a new witness, or I have new information relevant to the case. And uh, there are not enough of, of us that are, are still doing that. And it, because it's, it, it takes work, it's an effort. You have to have a commitment. And, and as you and I both had, when we first started back in, in, in late 88, and then actually February of 89, when we were first went to New Mexico, we were gonna allow the evidence to take us wherever it did. We had no preconceived theories. You and I were both skeptical on the case. And I think, you know, get, just getting back to the ballet quickly for a moment. If you have a preconceived position as to what happened, you're going to, you know, steer your, your, the, the course of your investigation along that course. Well, let me interrupt yeah. here. Let me interrupt here because I'm going to have to take a break. But since you brought up ballet again, uh, let's talk about Ubatuba because in his paper, he makes a, makes a claim in that paper that I found very interesting and is something that I had never seen before. And I think it's important to understand the, the Ubatuba a physical sample that was uh, explored in 1957. When we come back, Don and I will talk about that and take a look at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com because there is additional information available there. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. I am joined by Don Schmidt. Uh, ufologist for decades, as have I. I think between us, we probably have around 50 years of UFO investigation. We were, talk- we were talking about um, all sorts of things that happened in the, the last year. Uh, before we went to the break, I had mentioned the Ubatuba sample and the uh, Jacques Vallée paper. Vallée in that paper, and I don't know if you caught this or not, Don, he said the Ubatuba sample was picked up in 1933 or 1934. He's off by 30, by 20 years. Yeah. I mean, how do you No, No, he says what happened was the person who picked it up didn't send it to the newspaper until 1957. So we've all been using the 1957 date 
as the date of the incident, September of 1957. If that's, if that's correct, wow, that's quite, you know, talk about pre-modern, you know, age of ufology, you know, 15 years before it starts. But if you look at it from another point of view, it destroys even more so the, the provenance of the sample. Right, right. Because we always had heard the story, the guy picked it up on the beach and sent it to the reporter. We didn't know who the guy was that picked it up on the beach and sent it to the reporter. We don't know who picked it up or who, how many hands it passed through before it got to the reporter now in 1957. Okay. The other problem, it was uh, with Dr. Lavio Fontes, who was a colleague of the, the, the Lorenzans, who got the sample to them. And I think if we talk to our Brazilian colleagues, um, we find out that Fonte's reputation isn't the greatest among them now as they kind of delve back into some of the cases he explored. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I had the experience when uh, Dr. Peter Sturrock had actually presented uh, Valet with a couple of the fragments and uh, I got to look at them under a microscope. And I was surprised that the fragment that I, I seen very much resembled what geologist Frank Kimbler is finding at the Roswell debris field. And nothing unusual. It's almost, it's, it's mostly aluminum. And yet I know the so suppose Ubatuba was uh, titanium. No, magnesium. Or magnesium, and uh, but I thought there was some uh, titanium. Very, yeah. Small yeah. bits of contamination. I think aluminum is one of the contaminants, but it's a very, very small. It was, it was a magnesium of a purity that supposedly wasn't obtainable in 1957. Certainly wasn't obtainable in 1933, if Valet is right about that. But so, we have no provenance. We don't know where it came. Well, all we know is it, it, there's the magazine writer got his hands on it in 1957. Right. So it still comes down to the uh, radioisotope as far as lab, as far as analyses that determine as far as the physical makeup, how the, at the molecular level, how things, you know, are combined and then assume as far as a particular, you know, metal composition. Uh, it's, it's the same standards that, uh, exist today would be applied but um you know it, it was supposedly the lorenzans even had a piece as far as that they kept as far as that the apro uh file with the apro files and that was a piece that disappeared as uh the files were rifled through and to this day we still don't know what the the uh, the situation is with the apro files and a, a lot of things were taken a lot of things are missing so things can be replaced. Things can also be substituted. So we don't, again, you're absolutely correct. We don't know the provenance. We don't know if it's the, even the original sample. That we don't even know if the story is true. To begin with, right, right, right. All we know, all we know is, is a newspaper reporter said, or a magazine writer said that he'd received this sample of something supposedly the craft was seen to explode in the air and it rained down on the beach and into the ocean. Right. The guy picked up some samples and sent it to this this uh, magazine writer. Well, was was it 1957 when he saw it when that happened, or was it 1933 and 1934 that Valet now says that that that's the situation? And, and so see, anytime 
Anytime the dates change, and it was the same problem we have as far as getting back to Valet and the, uh, as far as the uh, San Antonio with Remy Baca. Why did he change the date? Why, uh, why tell me one date and then later he talks to another researcher and it's two years earlier? Right? As far as I'm concerned right there, you've disqualified yourself. Well, I think, you know, you look at it, the, the idea was that 1945 is a response to our detonation of atomic weapons. And it's right close to where the atomic first atomic bomb was exploded. But my question is, where is the craft? If you can detect a nuclear explosion on a planet in another solar system, which is very problematic, uh, how fast can you get there to investigate it? And the light wouldn't have gotten to the closest star system uh, for four years. Four point three, yes, yeah, Alpha Centauri, right. So, so then you have to say, well, where was the craft? Why would they respond to this flash of light on Earth that quickly, within a matter of of weeks, as opposed to years? Um, so that it, it, there really is no relationship between the atomic testing at White Sands and the Trinity site, and all, the, all of that. I think they just are jumping on that. Uh, bandwagon to add a note of legitimacy to to the claims. And see, at least with Roswell, we could say there was a two-year gap. That even if we would use the analogy like a starship enterprise, something that was more in our vicinity, and yet it still took two years. Uh, even Blue Book had pretty much uh, determined that there were more UFO sightings in New Mexico at that time than anywhere else in the country. So I always, as I always say, it was as though someone else was interested in our military potential and what better place than New Mexico at that time. And it may indeed have been that flash, but it's two years later, it isn't within days as uh, Valet would, would have us believe. Well, I think we pretty well hammered the Trinity site into the ground here. I think there's, there's great problems with that book. There's a, a real lack of investigative depth to it. Well, the behavior of the military, I mean, my God, I mean, they were, they were acting like school children. Uh, there was no discipline among them and behaving as though this, you know, was a downed airship from 1897 and uh, they, were, they were having fun with it. And they didn't care if they had spectators observing, you know, their recovery operation. And then the thought that they were burying and burning actual wreckage to speed up uh, the re retrieval operation, uh, no. You, and you know that better than I do, Kevin, as far as that's, that's hardly military protocol, even at that time. Well, I think the military protocol would have been a lot stricter in that time frame than it is today. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. That matter. But, but that was the thing. We've, we've collected the craft. We've got it on a flatbed truck. Well, we've done that, guys. Let's go to lunch. And yeah, let's go to lunch. Leave it unattended. Let the boys come and pick up whatever souvenirs they want and uh, hang them up on their Christmas tree. We don't care. Yeah. Oh, so I, 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 I don't understand the, I guess it's the name of Valet that, that um, was the catalyst in that book. Uh, had it been anything else that nobody would have cared about it, but I think it's uh, indicative of where his mind is going, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I mean, no, he just no. he's casting about now for uh, any case final, that has metallic debris associated. Yeah, with final it. answers, final answers. Be, 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 while I still yeah. have time, I want 
I want a piece of, I want to hold something in my hand. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that um, we can, we can dismiss that book and we just can dismiss that case unless there's some additional information comes about. And I always say that, you know, I, I believe cattle mutilations have a terrestrial explanation, but I revisit mm -hmm. that information periodically to make sure there's nothing new there that I haven't missed something that there may be some kind of an extraterrestrial involvement. I don't know what it would be, but you have to look at the data, the, the latest data to see where it's gone and where you are, and if there's any major changes in it. See, that's where you and I, as far as we had a different methodology as far as investigation and that instead of where most it's very linear that it's 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 straight ahead and you you do your, your interviews and they're left behind you and i it was very circular because new witnesses would then present a new line of questioning to then retrace and go back to a walter hot go back to a glenn or, or, or any other witness so it was always very circular yet still progressing forward and and I'm, I'm afraid that so many, uh, they, they have this direct approach instead of allowing the evidence, direct their investigation. And I think it's always a good mark of a, of a journalist when they step back and they ask themselves, but what if this witness, what if this individual is telling the truth? What if there, any part of it smacks of reality? And here I am just summarily dismissing it without at times coming back and going, I need to revisit this. I need to ask another question. And I think that's always uh, you know, the, the hallmark of someone who is not afraid of not only making mistakes, but also willing to you know, look at reality and accept it for whatever it is, no matter how sinister, no matter you know, how symbiotic that uh, truth is truth, reality is reality. Well, let's, let's do this because, Don, you know, we're going to have to take our, our break here. Uh, for those uh, paying attention, uh, Don and I will be back in a week to continue our discussion. We'll complete it here in a few minutes, but we'll, we'll have it up in, in the next week. Uh, I did want to mention, because it kind of uh, hits with where we're going, I did a book called UFOs in the Deep State, which some guy didn't like because because the Project Mogul explanation answers Roswell. And I thought, yeah, I'd like to respond to that. But the point simply is we're, we're looking at all that kind of data that relates to what we're talking about. So uh, for me, the, the book is um, uh, UFOs in the Deep State, uh, Encountering the Desert, which is a coral, Roswell in the 21st century. I've got the uh, Leveland book called out, coming out called Leveland. Don, your latest books are? Touched by Roswell. Close Encounters of the Rich and Famous, and um, we're doing a 75th rewrite uh, edition of Witness to Roswell, which will be out uh, this next June, commemorating the uh, 75th anniversary coming up. And there's, uh, I still go through that case and find interesting little tidbits that uh, Make sense. And one of the things that came up is if Brazel brought debris to the sheriff's office on the first day and it was a mogul balloon, why the hell would Jesse Marcel go out to the ranch? Well, exactly, Kevin. The idea that why did Blanchard dispatch not a couple of grunts just to humor Brazel, but he sends his two head of intel. And the, the point being that why send Cabot, the head of counterintelligence, 
and specifically my position is it was in the event it was something indeed foreign that that would have been Cabot's specialty. So uh, you make a good point. So there we go. Uh, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And of course, this show is appearing on the Exome Broadcast Network. And there's many fine shows being broadcast by Exome Broadcast Network. So take a look at the website at xzbn.net and you'll find something that is completely different from what we're doing here and that sort of thing. Uh, in the next segment, I'm, we're going to talk about, I think, the idea that Einstein went to Roswell, which was a big factor that came up here um, just a few weeks ago. I talked to the author of the book, um, Einstein, when Einstein went to Roswell and that sort of thing to get his take on where he came from and why he included so much MJ-12 MJ stuff in it. Um, and that's, that's become kind of a controversial point here. Um, you can find uh, my interview with him, of course, at uh, my blog. There's an embedded audio player there, and you can scroll down and find uh, Peter Strasberg. Dr. Peter Strasberg is the fellow's name, and you can listen to our interview about that. And uh, I will be back here with Don Schmidt, technically next week, uh, talking about some of these sorts of things. And... Uh, making sure that you uh, take a look at the blog. I really have nothing else to say. So thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in 167 hours. <laughs>